Good morning and welcome to Lifeline Eddie. I'm your host, John Aberly. Today my guest is a very interesting man. We're going to learn a lot about special operations today. His name is Mr. Dick Marcinko. He is the founder, the original founder of Navy SEAL Team 6. Yes, people, that's the one that took out bin Laden back in late April. Mr. Marcinko, welcome to the show, and thank you for coming on with me. Well, thanks for having me, John. I appreciate it. Let's, I want to start with something here real quick. You've got, like, several different nicknames, and I've read a couple of your <laughs> books, and I just reread uh, Rogue Warrior recently within the last couple of weeks. Nicknames, Rogue Warrior, Demo Dick, Shark Man of the Delta, and The Geek. Now, they're kind of all over the board there, Dick. How do you, uh, the, the, just friends of yours came up with these and they stuck? Well, I, I think that uh, they're probably more timing events than they are uh, uh, different friends. So uh, it's almost a benchmark of where I was in life. That's pretty good. Where, what's, uh, if you had to pick one, what's the favorite? Uh, probably Geek. It's <laughs> <laughs> the one that kept popping up in Rogue Warrior. I'm thinking, this guy is a legitimate fighting machine. He wants to be called the Geek. Well, you know, that that's part of that. Be, be evasive and pose as a non-threat. So it works easier that way. Okay. Hey, but wait, wait, anything to keep yourself, I guess, uh, uh, kind of uh, on the down low, so to speak, so people don't really know who you are and what you're capable of. Um, you grew up in uh, Tom, well, you went to school in Tom's River, Admiral Farragut, correct? Actually, no. <laughs> okay, that's what the bio says. That's okay. A, yeah, that's that's a, that's a bad bio. That's, okay. But that's not bad, John. That, okay. that means you read everything. Well, I uh, did, and the thing is, I grew up on Long Beach Island, not that far from there. Yeah, I actually grew up in New Brunswick, New Jersey. The the, the Admiral Farragut is is very close friend and and uh, fellow seal that we grew up together with. It's Harry Humphreys. Okay. 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 Because I then that explains some of the things I saw. You worked in a uh, restaurant. Or something when you were younger, where all, all the Rutger kids were coming around in that yep. area? Yep, that was at Gussie's on okay. Eastern Avenue. In New, in, 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 it used to be called New Brunswick. They probably call it Johnson & Johnson City today. Yeah, it probably could be, considering what's up there. Actually, I wasn't up there not that long ago on business. And uh, I tell you, it's really changed. I don't know if you've been back, but Rutgers has become a real hub. Oh yeah, it, it's uh, well. I, I don't get. I, I get up there as the train goes by into New York City. Okay, yeah, that's basically. Yeah, that's that's basically it there. Um, you joined the Navy 1958, correct? Correct. Why? Why the Navy? Uh, because all of my uncles uh, on both sides of the family had been Army or Army Air Corps. Okay. Uh, so there was no no blue and gold in the in the bloodline. I decided it was my turn. Now you were now you come from a Slavic descent, correct? Correct. Now you were born, I believe, in the Scranton area of uh, Pennsylvania. Am I close? You're close. Yeah. Okay. Uh, yeah. Uh, Scranton. It's just not not having uh, had a, a family car uh, is kind of hard to relate. To. Now, now, now being a driver, I go back there to visit an uncle, and which seemed like a long way is you know two miles to here and seven miles to there, which is walking distance. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. That's how it changes when you get older. It, it, it's like you go back to an old house; it seems so much smaller now. You're right. Than what it was. Uh, you went into the Navy. Mm-hmm. Now you were in obviously in 1958, so that was uh, after the Korean War and before Vietnam. Before we got caught in that. Mess. Yeah, actually, the the impetus on that one, uh, John, was we still had a draft, and and you know rather than going into the army, I thought I'd volunteer and go to the navy. Okay. But we had Lebanon in '58. That's right. I forgot about that. And yes. uh, and and that was I, I actually uh, was gonna I tried to join the the um, Marine Corps, and they said that there was no guarantee I'd get to war. And I said, well, then I'm not going to guard a gate. And, <laughs> and so that, <laughs> that shows you how much I knew about the Marine Corps. Um. 
you uh, you went in as a uh, teletype operator, correct? Yeah, radio man. Yeah, clickety clack, clickety clack. Here come the girls from Radio Shack. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that's, what, that's what geek gets in there, John. Yeah, that works perfectly, Dick. Any reason uh, teletype operator was that what the Navy chose for you as yeah, a specialty? That was, just, that was that was one of those. Uh, apparently, they thought I had uh, some mental makeup that was conducive to that. Okay, where were you uh, stationed first? Uh, let's see, after boot camp in the Great Lakes, I went to, hmm. to Radium and A School down in Norfolk, Virginia. Actually, I had, a, I had a, about a three-month three wait up in Quonset Point, Rhode Island. Wow. Then to Norfolk, and from Norfolk, I went to, uh, where did I go? Oh, Dalton, Virginia, right, right close to where I live now. Okay. Uh, it was then a weapons proving ground. So, in fact, you know, it was so remote that uh, that is where they we actually tracked the database was there for for the Sputniks. Oh. So that's that's where the teletype work came in, and in, in that, that we were doing the down linkage on on this, all those things flying around in space. Yeah, you kind of came on just as the uh, space race was beginning yeah, between Russia yeah. and the states. Who'd have thunk, huh? No, who'd have thought at all, considering how far we've come since then, too. Oh yeah. Um, your upbringing for yourself, were you uh, an aggressive kid? Were you uh, a problem child in any way? How were you growing up that would, anything that would show that you were going to end up in this kind of career? Uh, I was Tex good bad boy. Okay. <laughs> I, uh, I, I, uh, see, I was locked up in the backyard till I was five years old, and then I found a front banister and jumped it. Okay. <laughs> uh, uh, you know, and living in a small mining town, it wasn't like there was a lot of traffic, uh, but there was a lot of uh, adventurous caves and pits and mine shafts to climb around. And uh, I actually started peddling papers with my uncles, who, let's see, the youngest one would have been five years older than me, so... Uh, I I was out hustling a, uh, then a quarter a week, wow. uh, and uh, I used to use it as a skate to get out of the house. I <laughs> say, you know, if it's called work, fine, but I'm gone. Hey, that works for me. Uh, we're talking to Dick Marcinko. He is the original founder of Navy SEAL SEAL Team Six that took out uh, Osama bin Laden back in April. We're learning about his background right now. I want to lead in. I don't want to jump right to. The meat of of of, uh, of uh, Commander Marcinko's uh, background in Special Forces. I want to lead into. I want to find out more about him, and that's the direction we're going. I want the audience to know that. Dick, he ended up in uh, UDT, uh, Underwater Demolition uh, Teams. Can yep. you explain what UDT is? And, and and a second question: Are they still around? I know they were a precursor to the SEALs, but are they still active today? Uh, you start with that one, no. Okay, uh, but. Uh, Besides the question you led into about yeah. why it was the Navy, mm -hmm. there was a, also a movie that came out in 1950, I believe, black and white, and it was called Frogmen. Okay. So I've seen that one, and and it depicts uh, uh, it depicts uh, underwater with aqualungs, Mike Nelson aqualungs on, uh, going into submarine pens. So I say, hey, that sounds kind of neat. Uh, and uh, so that is uh, underwater demolition teams were uh, founded, uh, you know, pre World War Two or about World War Two, uh, out of Fort Pierce, Florida, where we now have a UDT Seal Museum. Okay. Uh, but they were, in essence, designed to clear the beaches so that the Marines for the landing force could get in. So that was blowing the obstacles, and and that was their primary function uh, in World War Two. And and that's what I joined. Is they're referred to as frogmen, and 
uh, stay that until John F. Kennedy uh, mm-hmm. said he wanted unconventional warfare capability in all the services, and that's when they formed uh, SEAL teams, uh, one team on the East Coast, one team on the West Coast, comprised of 10 officers and 50 enlisted men okay. uh, initially. And then they still had uh, UDT, underwater demolition teams. But if you are a military historian or you're going to tasking, what was kind of unique was the the mission of underwater demolition team was clearing the beaches and they had a secondary function of collecting intelligence further inland uh, in, in support of the landing force. If you look at SEAL teams, their primary mission was to go in inland to collect intelligence and to to work on high value targets, but had a capability to clear the landing beaches. So it was, you know, one's tasker was the other one's missions, and they just flip-flopped. So eventually they made all the team SEAL teams. Okay. Did you serve with Jesse Ventura by any chance? No. He was the West Coast, uh, okay. West Coast, and, and he had one tour in Vietnam out of Da Nang area. Now, becoming a SEAL back in the beginning, what was the training? Was the training dramatically different in the early 60s compared to what it is now, or is the same physical and mindset still there? Oh, well, yes and no. Okay. <laughs> the, uh, I think the biggest difference, John, and, and, and I, I openly admit, uh, first of all, you're supposed to say, my class was the uh, was the hardest class. Okay. Uh, so now we got that one out of the way. I'm class 26 on East Coast, and uh, and we just celebrated 50 years from, from graduation. So Congratulations. That was a, and we're down to only 11 left. Wow. <laughs> if we can find a telephone booth next year, maybe we can muster in a telephone booth. <laughs> but at uh, any rate... Uh, uh, then training was was only 24 weeks, and you didn't have the the lung training in, included or jump phasing. Now, under Bud's basic underwater demolition SEAL training out of Coronado, uh, it's six months. So, the the psychological big difference that I think makes it harder is six months is a long time to be a stinking trainee. Yep. And and what ha- you know any time in any of those evolutions or events as you progress through the training cycle. If you get hurt, you get hurt, and you know you either roll back to another class, and and I I can I never had to roll back, but I, I know people that did that eventually joined my class, and as they approached again that phase of training where they got hurt. It was like an albatross around their ah, neck. Yeah. It was just, uh, you know, they could t- you could see it, you could taste it in the air. The psychological uh, factor. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So it's a. Uh, th- that's why I think training is is a. Uh, a lot, a lot harder because that that is a long time to not be real people and 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 risk the uh, getting hurt problem. Yeah, yeah. Some of the uh, Air Force training I went through, the uh, Louvre was the same thing. Long extended training and. You're kind of in that mindset. You know, for yourself, when you went in, uh, was there ever any question in your mind you were going to succeed at the SEAL training, or was there a doubt at all? I, no, there was no doubt. I mean, I, I, it's a, I, like I tell, tell the youngsters today, mm-hmm. John, um, uh, one, you know, you try it, and just remember, and then those days, I'm not sure if thousands made it through training yet, but <clears throat> it wasn't like it was a brand new training cycle, and we're not sure if humans can make it through. Gotcha. So, you know, it, it had a pattern, but but every person has a different threshold uh, for pain and endurance yep. and all the above. And, and then one day you just wake up, and then the realization is there of, you know, the instructors have never asked me to do anything I can't do. 
And once you recognize that, then when it's like Pavlov's theory, when they say jump, you just jump and work it out on the way down uh, because it, it's all worked before. Uh, you know, maybe with effort and pain, but they never asked Mission Impossible. And that, that takes a big monkey off your back of the apprehension, the can I, uh, you know, do I do a surge now or do I conserve my strength and wait for, you know, a race for the end, uh, uh, near the end of the, 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 this evolution? How do I do it? You just do it. And, and once that happens, then, then you're just a sponge absorbing everything and, and it makes life a lot easier. What's the washout rate? Well, it's, they started keeping staff, I think, at 57, John, okay. and the graduation cycle now is, it remains about the same, uh, 23 to 27%. That's all I'll make it. What's the, uh, the perfect seal? What, what, what's the personality and body type that comes <laughs> in? I, I, I did some reading on it, but I want to get your opinion first. What is the prototypical seal that you, if the Navy could design it, they would. Who is the who's the one that just survives the most? Uh, the, the cornered rat. I, <laughs> I actually say that they're, they're social misfits that make music together because they're all there for different reasons. Uh, you know, whether they're proving it to themselves or to somebody else, or are they just adventuresome? There's, there, there's no one one thought process as to why they're there. And I actually helped work on a study way back when uh, the, the the Navy's behavioral science lab asked the same question, John. You know, do, do you have a cleft ear? Do you, you know, what's your ethnic background? Do you have blue eyes or brown eyes? Are you left-handed or right-handed? And there's just no, there's no automatic uh, breakout on that as to who makes it through or doesn't. It, it, it really is a, a true village of, of all kinds of personalities that, that are one alpha, alpha males, two uh, defiant, uh, three get bored in a hurry and just need constant challenge. Yeah, I can. I guess if you do the psychological profile, that you would, that's what you would see. Uh, I noticed in the stuff that I did in the Air Force, you had a lot of uh, uh, captains of football teams, a lot of different leaders with that kind of personality coming in. Then you had the rogues who, uh, you know, came from a background that was more, uh, you know, difficult and kind of gave them an edge, I think, in certain ways. Well, yeah, I, I use it a lot in corporate speeches, John. Uh, you know, we as a, as a nation, uh, civilian and militarily, we, 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 we tend to, to hire the one percenters, uh, the top of the, the cream of the crop. And so when you form a new organization, you know, everybody looks for the who's the natural leader, who's the you know the dancing bear, who can get everything done, and 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 that's just their natural instinct. Um, I make sure that I have what I call sled dogs, um, yeah. and have a fair share of those. And and the and the reason why is is that. Uh, a one percenter, and, and if you had to kind of put an image to it, you know, the country club athlete that's captain of the football team that, you know, won all the awards and but never broke a sweat winning them. Yeah. So he's never, never lost. I mean, he doesn't know losing. Well, if you hire a sled dog, uh, I mean, they fight every day. Every day is an effort just to exist. And so when something difficult comes, you don't know what that one percenter is going to do. That sled dog is just, it's just another day for that sled well, dog. Well, that's what I was going to ask you. Personalities. You have someone who everything's going great for them. Uh, the first time they experience adversity, it might break them. Or the second time, there's the rare human being, and I think you'll agree, that can keep coming back fifth, sixth, or seventh try in order to make something happen. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it, then you know you're buying loyalty, determination, and focus. And, you know, I, I get in arguments with myself when I'm, when I'm writing, you know, is it, mm-hmm. is it a natural instinct or is it a developed thing? And I'm, I'm not sure I even have the answer on that, and particularly when you delve in today's world of DNA. Uh, you know, is there is there a gene in there that you could tweak that would make them all make it through training? Uh, technically, I guess, or scientifically, you could do that, but uh, I don't know that we would know the staying power, or that we'd know the 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 innovative thought. Because when you look at a special warfare warrior, they're basically a survivalist. Uh, you're telling them to work behind the lines and to live without logistic support and to take whatever's on the ground in terms of challenges and take whatever's on the ground in terms of subsistence um, and, and exist and, and, above all, complete the mission. So there's a, you know, every breath, in essence, is a an evaluation of what's going on. Every breath is a focus on what is to be done. And, and every breath is, is just busy doing things. So it, it's, a, it's a great life. Excellent. We are talking to Lieutenant Commander Richard Marcinko, retired, one of the original Navy SEALs, also the founder of SEAL Team 6. Be back in a few moments. Hey everybody, Brent McHenry here. Do you want to know the latest in lifestyle and entertainment news? Well, tune in Wednesdays and Saturdays from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. and I will give you the latest in health, lifestyle, and entertainment news. That's The Brin Project with me, Brynn McHenry, on Wednesdays and Saturdays from 12 p.m. to 1 p.m. on WCHE 1520 AM, the talk of Chester County. Wish there was a local hardware store that provided friendly, personal service, helping you find exactly what you need, get you in and out of the store quickly with the prices that meet or beat the big box stores? Well, look no further than Ace Hardware of Westchester. Ace of Westchester is a full-service hardware store that has everything you need for your home or project. Lumber, glass and screening repair, key cutting, small engine repair, an incredible supply of nuts, bolts, and fasteners. And Ace is the exclusive home for the all-new Clark and Kensington Premium interior and exterior paint plus primer in one. Clark and Kensington is designed to save you time and money and provide superior coverage, an ultra smooth finish and is stain resistant and easy to clean. Check out these Ace December Red Hot Buys. Get the mechanic on your list, a Craftsman 5 Drawer Tool Center, just $99.99. Save 20%. 20-pound bag of Ace Wild Bird Food, only $6.99 and Ace is the place for fresh Christmas wreaths and garland, $75 foot garland only $29.99. Ace Hardware of Westchester is located on Strasburg Road just past the Daily Local News and they're open seven days a week for your convenience. Have a question? Call them 610-344-4811. Ace and Ace Hardware of Westchester is the helpful place. On to round three. If a train leaves Spokane... Connectedy by Saturday. Correct. March comes before May. What's in my left pocket? Hmm. Half a mint and a rusty switchblade. Correct. Bam. Who lets you watch TV episodes and movies instantly over the Internet? Ha-ha! <laughs> Netflix! Correct! <laughs> watch unlimited TV episodes and movies for only 8 bucks a month from Netflix. See terms of use. That is rad! I know. Can you put me down now? Sorry. I'm a hugger. Let's you watch TV episodes and movies instantly. Hello, I am Jillian Harris from Extreme Makeover Home Edition, and you are listening to WCHE 1520 AM. I broke a thousand hearts before I met you. I break a thousand. 
Come on, baby. Welcome back to Life Unedited. Today, my guest is retired Lieutenant Commander Richard Dick Marcinko. He is the founder of Navy SEAL Team 6. Uh, Dick, you served in Vietnam. How many tours? Two. Two. What was your, uh, your mission? Well, I, actually, I was with the first group uh, to, to uh, deploy from the East Coast in, and uh, we were in support of the River Reinforce. Okay. Uh, it was uh, in terms of... Uh, Notoriety. It was the first time that SEALs being deployed was made public, and and the Navy, frankly, didn't really know what to do with us. You know, it's how you how you use it. So much like we discussed earlier in the interview, is uh, you know to, to instead of protecting the the beachhead and getting the Marines in, it was to make sure that the rivers were open from Viet Cong so that the supplies could get into. Um, into Vietnam and stopped the movement of the Viet Cong through the Delta up towards Saigon. And um, so the original uh, mission was to keep the waterways open, which meant uh, being inserted uh, around major rivers and patrolling and finding uh, the enemy camps and their cache systems and, and just trying to catch them in transit. Now, anyone out there wants to learn uh, more about the uh, lieutenant commander here, there's a book he wrote about 20 years ago, and I read it called Rogue Warrior. I would call it more of your biography than anything else you've written. Dick? Yeah, it was an autobiography. It was perfect. Believe me, I said the second time I read it within the last couple of weeks. What is with the wanted poster in Vietnam? Can you give us some, some little background on that? That I find to be truly amazing. Well, it, it, uh, I guess I didn't know that, uh, that I was a rogue yet, <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> uh, it got kind of boring just, uh, you know, inserting and, and waiting for the enemy to move and shoot them like fish in a pond or a barrel. And, and I always thought that the best way to, to get the biggest kill count was to, you know, get back in where they where they have their rest areas and where they're not expecting anybody to come and, and then, then you get not only the better body count but you get their arm supply and you get your intelligence so you know what you know what their capabilities are and what they're doing and uh, so I started venturing into to uh, deeper into the delta and the mountain regions far off the off the canals and uh, my mentality was uh, seals were a maritime and maritime warrior and as long as I had a canteen on my hip I was in a maritime environment so that that made sense to me but um, that that uh, flexibility of, of going further in uh, and moving around um, at different spots, I guess uh, the, that and the fact that I, I went most of the time barefoot in black pajamas, and Jeez. of course we had uh, we had uh, our face camouflaged, mm -hmm. and uh, you know I grew up with uh, memories of World War II and and a story a TV series that that came out called Combat, which is black and white in World War II. Uh, in Europe, and, and I can remember the the partisans, you know, just being so friendly to the Americans, and villagers running out and JGI Joe and hugging him. So on Vietnam, when it was like those two villages, you know, the little villagers would run out and the kids would grab your legs, and you know, and I didn't have a lot of suckies and chewies or candies on me like we had in the movies, uh, so they didn't get much from me on that. But it wasn't until I was there a little bit, John, that you know, I learned that they weren't greeting me; um, they were coming out and passing. 
passing on their evil spirits to me. That was the best. Keep going with that one. I, I like how you turn it back on them. So, you know, once you understand the enemy and the fact that they, they're going to, their belief system, they're going to be reincarnated in whatever the, the, the animal of the year is, um, I would smudge my... Uh, one, I, I have Ricky Raccoon eyes. My eyebrows go all the <laughs> way around my eyes. So uh, I would rub my the hair under my eyes and, and get some of the, the uh, camouflage on my fingers, and I would rub it on their forehead. So that meant that uh, when they came back in life, they were going to be a green-faced monkey. So I <laughs> said, well, you know, you can play your game, and I'll play mine. That's actually to take that much time to learn about how the enemy works and then turn it back on them. That's probably why they were scared of hell of you. <laughs> well, yeah, the, the enemy actually taught me more about war than any school I'd gone to here mm. in the States. Uh, and, and they've been fighting it for 20 years. So, you know, what what made them tick and, what, you know, what, you know the, I didn't go barefoot because I thought it was cool. Uh, you feel trip wires a lot better uh, wearing them, and you don't leave the same footprint and uh, I mean I still have a pair of Michelin tires uh, sandals that, that, that in fact are made from Michelin tires and inner tubes that they used to wear but you know you learn uh, we walk funny as Americans we do heel toe first normally yeah. so you get it you know uh, I mean I would walk through places and people people behind me on patrol would walk almost on the same footprint and, and detonate a you know, small booby trap so um, it was a, it, I did it for survival uh, not to be cool, you know, cool or be yeah. Rambo. Yeah, it's what you, you did. What you had to do. You, you learned. You overcame. You adapted. Well, I figured Congress couldn't have the guts to declare the war. I wasn't going to get hurt. Oh, please don't get me started on that. Well, we can go for hours on that. Um, let's talk Operation Eagle Claw. Uh, okay. Iranian Desert, 1980 hostage crisis. Mm -hmm. Jimmy Carter decides he's going to do a hostage rescue attempt. He's bringing in special forces from all branches. Never been done before. Could you give us a... Uh, you were there. You were sitting, I believe, in the Pentagon. Yeah. Watching this in real time, correct? Correct. And you saw and heard exactly what happened. Give us a quick overview. Oh, it, it was one of those moments of, of sheer embarrassment. Uh, one, uh, it, it, it wasn't a quick fix. I mean, the, the, the special forces people and and all the services rehearsed for like seven, eight months yeah. all across the United States. Uh, and we actually had people on the ground to check the porosity of the sand. Could the C-130 land there? Could the helicopters land there? Would the fuel, you know, all the above for Desert One. Uh, but here you are now, it's going on, and, and, and you're in the, in the command center listening. Uh, we could hear the gendarmerie, their, their border police, uh, chatting. And, you know, you wonder, they, are they talking about helicopters going over their borders, or is it just normal chatter, you know, you're, you're kind of apprehensive, your heart in your throat, and, and that nothing got blown yet, did it? And and then, of course, they they land, and, you know, all of uh, Murphy's Law came up in, in that uh, we had certainly thought about the porosity of sand, but didn't figure out the finite particles that come when you have a sandstorm, and the sandstorm got in there and, and got into the filter systems of the helicopter, so on liftoff, uh, they didn't get the lift and, and, of course, came down and crashed into the C-130 wing tanks, and, and not only does it cause U.S. deaths there, but a blown mission, and, of course, the embarrassment of, of uh, uh, this almighty nation, the United States, uh, can't even rescue 50 of their, some of their people out of their own embassy in Tehran, so it was... Um, uh, hearts and throats, frustration, um, 
just an, an, a total embarrassment. Uh, now, the plus side to that, that's why there's a SEAL Team 6 or a development group now uh, and JSOC because of that failure, because uh, the the study afterwards uh, on that failed mission was that no longer will we do counter-terrorist or terrorist operations with part-time help. Well, that uh, was it. They um, created out of that, that embarrassment of... Uh, Operation Eagle Claw, as you just said, was JSOC, Joint Special Operations Command. Born from that, you were tasked to create a, an elite unit inside of an elite unit, uh, SEAL Team 6. Now, you were an officer at that point, correct? You were a commander? Correct. Oh, yeah, I was a commander okay. then. So they came to you personally, and you seem to have a, a, an either very strong relationship with the brass or at other times a very contentious, maybe a hate <laughs> relationship with the brass, and it's kind of hard to balance the two. I think you figured that one out in your career. Um, when they came to you first, when, when, when they sat you down and said, look, Dick, we need you to, to really come up with something here, your first thought, I would imagine, was, this is great, let's do it. What was the next thought? Well, I was actually still I was stationed, again, at the, at the Pentagon, so I was the action officer uh, when the it was, it was referred to as the Admiral Holloway White Paper that says form a force, and and it was a joint study or joint paper that was passed around to services, and they had actually asked for a a uh, element seal element to be stationed at Fort Bragg. And as the action officer on that paper, I said, well, one, it's, it's hard to practice maritime, how to take down a love boat at Fort Bragg, <laughs> North Carolina. They don't go there that often. And, and obviously, you lose your logistic support from anything that's maritime being there. So I changed the word element to command, slip of the pen, mm -hmm. and... Uh, and again, moved it to uh, Virginia Beach because Fort Bragg being on the East Coast, Washington being on the East Coast, uh, you know, that's where the decision we're going to be made on uh, because it, it was going to work for the National Command Authority, which is a Secretary of Defense and the President managed by the Joint Chiefs of Staff. So proximity to the to the decision makers was was a, was a key element. So it was again a timing thing, and uh, I, I certainly. Being there in the Pentagon, and and I happened as a collateral duty because I had been a, a naval attaché and an intel subspecialist. I carried the the black bag or the special intelligence to the CNO in the mornings, and so I was privy to what was in there. And I had daily contact or close to daily contact with him. So it wasn't like who is Dick Marcenko? He's the guy I see almost every morning. Why, uh, and there's a backstory to this, mm -hmm. why uh, name the Team Six? Because uh, we had one and two. <laughs> <laughs> that was the whole idea, wasn't it, to kind of confuse the enemy? Yeah, yeah. We, you know, we still had the mentality of yeah. the Cold War with the Soviets, so, you know, the the rule of thumb is odd, odd number of teams are on the West Coast and even number of teams are on the East Coast, so it had to be an even number. Uh, and, um, you know, if, if you have one and two, then we're three, four, and five. Um, I mean, I didn't know that. I mean, right now we have ten. County County six, which doesn't exist anymore, as a number count. But uh, there, I mean, there's ten teams out there, plus plus reserve elements and and development. Well, development group is part of of the team. But at any rate, uh, that was why the, the old Cold War mentality. Yeah, it makes sense. You, you had a 
you know, throw a diversion off. I mean, it, it definitely takes time and money to train special operations teams. So you don't, you know, you can, can, can get kind of caught, I guess, behind the eight ball uh, trying to put that together. So maybe at six would be perfect. We got to take a break, Dick. Hold on. I'm getting a thing from my producer here. We'll get back to you in a few moments. Listen to Life on Ed. I'm your host, John Averly. Be back in a few. I want to be up for the baby. Winter is on its way. Your propane appliances are designed to perform efficiently and give you the utmost in comfort and savings, and you can make sure they do. Now's the time to get your propane heating system and appliances inspected by a qualified service technician. Annual inspections and proper maintenance will ensure that your appliances run safely and efficiently. Also, check all of your appliance vents regularly to make sure that they are not blocked by snow, ice, or animal nests, and never store combustible materials near appliances. Brought to you by the Pennsylvania Propane Foundation and your local propane service provider. There's only one place in the Delaware Valley where you can go for the best selection of snacks, nuts, chips, candies, coffees, and more. Where quality meets economy. It's the Head Nut with a new location right here in Westchester on High Street near Gay. For the month of December, the Head Nut has some great bargains like their deluxe no peanuts mixed nuts. A wonderful snack anytime, regularly eleven fifty a pound, but this month only eight fifty. Milk chocolate covered mini pretzels are on sale for just two ninety nine a pound. The Head Nut also has pistachio gift bags in stock. The perfect holiday gift for family, friends, or co-workers. Grab a whopping two-pound bag of these premier pistachios for only $14. And for all you coffee lovers, it's gourmet Belgian chocolate coffee, freshly roasted to perfection by mainline coffee roasters. Regularly $8.50 a pound. This month, an incredible $6.99. The Head Nut has gift trays, freshly packed and ready to go. Not to mention downies, whiskey cakes, and Caribbean rum cakes. Wonderful gift gift-giving idea. Easy to find near the corner of High and Gay Street. For more information, call 610-430-1803. Open seven days a week, and don't forget, there's a wonderful new parking garage right behind the head nut with short-term parking options available. No ifs, ands, or buts. It's the head nut. This is Bill Mason from the WCHE Morning Magazine Show. The holiday season is a great time to give a gift that helps others and honors that special person on your list. Make a donation on behalf of a loved one to Safe Harbor of Chester County. Safe Harbor of Chester County was founded to provide shelter and encouragement for the homeless by helping them rebuild their lives and life skills, reestablish self-esteem, and overcome the issues that prevent them from leading independent, productive lives. Now, over the past 15 years, Safe Harbor has provided over 125,000 nights of shelter. Now, to continue their mission, Safe Harbor needs your help. It's easy. You can donate through their website, www.safeharborofgwc.org, or click on their link on the WCHE website, or mail your donation to 20 North Matlack Street, Westchester, PA, 19380. You will receive a certificate to gift wrap for the recipient. Or for a gift of $100, you can buy a brick engraved with a name or personal message that will be placed in the sidewalk outside of Safe Harbor. We greatly appreciate our WCHE listeners. Together, let's support a worthy cause and make a difference in the lives of those who need a helping hand. Hello, I'm Edward Herman. This is WCHE AM 1520 on your dial. Welcome back to Lifeline Edit. I'm your host, John Averly. Today, my guest is retired Lieutenant Commander Richard Marcinko, who is the founder of Navy SEAL Team 6. Dick, we, um, 
when you created six, uh, they pretty much gave you free reign. How much did you change the training? I know you created some things like Halo and Hey Ho Diving, and I want you to go into that. But you, you just brought a whole different mentality to it. Yeah, John. It, uh, I, I probably the, the 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 most critical one is is that the normal SEAL teams and uh, normal organizations uh, have departments like a diving department and an air operations department and an ordnance department, and, and you know those are the keepers of the equipment. And then the operators, when they have a diving job, they go to you know sub ops, submersible operations, and get their their equipment and draw it and go do their mission. And, and same thing with a parachuter, the weapons. Uh, what, what I did is I I built each individual in essence a cage or a jail, okay. uh, and issued everybody their own weapons and their own lung and their own parachutes. And and I could one visually walk by the cage and see if that everything was there. And and of course, uh, as you alluded to, I, I, did, I didn't necessarily have a blind check, but um, I knew where to find money to buy things that we needed, and and uh, that was that Pentagon experience. But mm. uh, I, So now, having everybody own their own equipment, there was no... The, the onus was on the individual. No one could say, uh, I got this out of ordinance and this rifle doesn't work right, or this lung didn't work on a dive because... Um, I mean, that's everybody had their own kit. Everybody had to maintain it within the operational units. We call them then boat crews. Um, now they they're, they're bigger numbers and called squadrons. But the, the the unit would comprise of experts in diving and experts in jumping. That that beyond individual maintenance, were there to guide them and say, no, this is how you fix that. So it it wasn't that everybody had to be an expert in every piece of gear. Uh, but they had to maintain it, and and that takes the uh, the excuse of of why things don't work and puts it on the individual, and, and that was the that was probably the biggest, and and then you know you draw money for jumping and draw extra money for diving and for demolitions, and and that fills up your coffers pretty good in terms of mad money, but most units don't have time to spend enough time of getting better and better at things. So they, they just jump enough jumps to get their pay purposes and blast to get enough demo. You know, it's a for-pay evolution, not for expertise. So I, I changed things into, we did blocks of training. For two weeks, we did nothing but jump, and for two weeks, we did nothing but dive. And that meant that if uh, if someone was not strong, it wasn't their strongest functional area. Um, normally, doing it only for pay, they would never get over that hump and, and master it. In two weeks, maybe they didn't like it anymore, but they suddenly became more proficient. And, you know, with proficiency, you build confidence, and with confidence, uh, uh, it becomes that Pavlov theory again of, this works, I can do it. So, it, it was putting the onus on the individual and in saturation training so that people got better and better at the things that they do. Halo diving. Explain that to us. It, it's, uh, it's, it's a unique thing that you came up with. Well, it, it actually, it's halo jumping, but it, it's high altitude, low opening, and and that's 
you know that was going on before before me. Mm. It started off as sports sports uh, parachute jumping. You know to come in and hit the disc. Uh, and the theory in the military uh, operation, of course, is to to jump at high altitude and to free fall. So you're doing terminal velocity of 120 miles an hour across the sky and open low over targets so that you're not dangling there as a target, which means you're you know you have to have good visibility to, to know where you're coming in at. That's hey low, mm-hmm. and then hey ho is high altitude, high opening, or where you at 20. Thousand plus, you exit the aircraft, and almost immediately, uh, once you stabilize, open up, and you fly your square canopy, uh, much like the plane. And with altitude winds, uh, I can tell you that uh, putting putting a group out over the desert floor, we look like a like a, a flight of A10s uh, because of the by, by putting strobes on our on our risers so that we could see each other uh, in training, just so we didn't run into each other. So you're you're now you can exit and hey ho, uh, and and the, the, the tactical application of it is is that uh, you you get a 727 with the steps that come down and we put laundry chutes in it and the plane flies normal air routes and maybe you know, just skirts a a uh, airspace of a uh, of the target country and declares an emergency and when it declares that emergency it can come off course a little bit and hits the brakes and put the flaps and drops and as he's doing that you get out of the airplane and then open up at hey hole the plane meantime survives what was a self-inflicted malfunction and radios in, I've got it, and get back on. And, and so that means that the, the host nation or the, the country is tracking that plane. Still busy tracking the plane, not the 20 people that got out in the back that are flying in, in uh, square canopies. And, and now you can, you can fly uh, for, for, for every foot that you, or every five feet that you go down, you're going to do at least one laterally. So, wow. so you, you know, depending on, you can even do better than that when you, depending on the altitude winds. And, and now you don't, you know, you don't walk land and, and run into the fisherman or the log cutter that says, what are you doing in my country and who are you? <laughs> you um you went for a civilian look. You decided to really uh, we'll say go undercover. You didn't you didn't want the boys um, dressing as military type people. You wanted a civilian look. How long? You know, if, if these guys are scattered all over the place, how long do they have after the call goes out to uh, rally up and meet? Four hours. Four hours from anywhere. Yeah. Well, there's an on call unit. Okay. So they're, I mean, they're they're all beepered, hardwired, and their kits ready to go, and they have four hours to get to the airport. Um, relationships, uh, as far as marriage goes, uh, <laughs> very difficult for someone in uh, in spec ops, is it? Uh, yes and no. Uh, yeah, I, I mean, it's harder on the families, John, than it mm-hmm. is the guys. Uh, I mean, the guys are shooters, and and they're you know they're happy doing their job, and it's like I said, you know, challenging, and and they're happy. The 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 problem for the family is is is, and particularly it was a, it was a problem when I formed six. It was a new way to function. Uh, the wives didn't know when the, when the husbands were leaving, and didn't know where they were going to go, uh, when they would be home. Uh, so the family, you know, the the wife 
assumes the role and changes what's what are priorities in a household. And then one morning, you know, the village idiot comes home and says, "Hey, I'm home," and um, but he knows when he's going back out the door, and he can't tell anybody. So he is intense, like he is in everything else. So when he's you know when he's gone, he's really gone, and when he's home, he's a real pain in the ass. Yes, it's not. Yeah, it's it's not easy to live with that. I, I and these guys bring a lot of stress with them as much as they enjoy what they do I think you would agree it's it's a lot of stress yeah I mean I, I used to bring the women in the, the, the wife's in once a, once a year for mm-hmm. you know talk to them on a Saturday and coffee and donuts and tell them what they could say because uh, the SEAL community you know they they either live in Virginia Beach or they live in Coronado California uh, areas and so they you know they know each other and, and we have the you know the, the functions on each coast and so it's not like you know, there's not a lot of chatter and, and then when you have like I built six with modified grooming standards and civilian clothes and civilian vehicles uh, you know the the wife's just as much as anybody else you know why isn't my husband over there why can't why can't my husband grow long hair <laughs> uh, so it, you know it it, uh, it it was a wrinkle in the pie I, you know I, I had not planned on but you have to live with and you know it's just functional things that the guys on the road had to send their mail to a different place so that you couldn't tell where it came from and and our telephone calls were hit off a different post so that you couldn't track the call and know where we were at and it was a you know the counterintelligence side of life was just as tiring and trying to the to the operator as it is to the bad guys trying to find you uh, but it's an adaptation that the family has to live with and and uh, uh I had to tell the wife. So I said, you know, let's be honest about this. He's coming through the door. He knows when he's going out again. Now, you have to be smart enough to figure out, you know, what does he need it first for? A lover, a husband, a father? Which which one's the highest priority? So, you know, it's a lover. Get a bank full, bag full of pennies and sell them out in the backyard and tell the kids to go get them. Um, or, you know, it, it, when it comes to birthday time for the kids, uh, don't let him take, you know, his daughter to a movie if she wants to go somewhere else. You have to tell him, what does she really want to do? Because yeah. every evolution that he does at home has to be prime time uh, just yep. to co- compensate how do you how does a man get picked for six well, it, that's um, when when I did it the original plank owners uh, I certainly went down to the guys that I picked that had been combat experience was the first priority um, you know having been shot at with your name on it as, as a uh, was then a dying criteria because the Vietnam vets were just getting ready to go out. The next thing I did was trade skills. I mean, could you enter a building as an HBAC man or could you go in as a, a reporter and, and do something or as a cameraman or as an electrician so you can shut down the, the power and, and tell me what the terrorists look like and, and you know, is there a Stockholm Syndrome going on? Yeah. Uh, what kind of weapons are they there? And, and that's why I ended up with civilian pilots is, is uh, the SEAL operators were, that meant everybody it hit the ground was going to work. Nobody was going to the O Club waiting for you know the mission to be over with. Uh, but the the. Uh today's world, you know, they re-enlist and try and get there, and, and then there's a criteria of selection. What do they need at a development group in terms of special skills? And, and they still get there and, and go through a green team mode and and, and then work into, you know, because now we're, the, the, everybody's going to war, so there's a lot of a combat experience around because of our 10 years in combat, but but there's still some newer toys that SIX has or dev group has that, that the other teams don't have yet, and, and the up-tempo is, is uh, close these days because of combat, but they're still 
uh, a few new added wrinkles to the pie that they have to adjust to. I wanted to mention, and I forgot to kind of get into it a little early in the interview, uh, Dick came in as an enlisted person and came out as an officer. And the fact that he was able to do that, let alone be an officer in spec warfare, uh, the way you came up is pretty rare, and, and not that you need it for me, but I want to say that you know that was very impressive reading that, because I know it's not an easy thing to uh, to obtain. Well, I guess it's just when you don't follow orders very well, you might better <laughs> get get a position where you can give some. But yes, um, you created another team out of SEAL Team Six. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's defunct now; it doesn't exist anymore. But it was called Red Cell. Yes. Now, out of Red Cell, I found it interesting. I believe you took six. SEAL team members, SEAL team six members, and one force recon marine? Yeah. Why uh, him? Well, actually... <laughs> <laughs> I gotta ask, everyone else is Navy, why him? Uh, well, actually, he was in the Navy by that time. Mm. He had been been in in the Marines, and he actually, he went to nuclear submarines, and I ran into him on, actually, near the Pentagon, and uh, I needed somebody uh, on the team that spoke Marine, because they, you know, they are the ones that, in those days, still guarded nuclear weapons, and still... Uh, were on the security force of some of the the, the high value targets that, of our bases that we had. So I needed some, you know, what 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 would a marine be doing? What are the priorities a marine would have? Just to uh, to, to you know to understand their vulnerabilities and and, and how red cell could penetrate. So that that was it, and we and um, you know the rest the. Uh, the rest were ex-SEAL Team 6 guys that just wanted to break or start to operate with me again. Yeah, Red Cell was different. You, uh, again, created a team that was to go out and test the security of other, insta- uh, of other installations around the world, be it military or private, if I'm correct. What y- You embarrassed a lot of people. Uh, well, as I say, John, I'm not a hell of a brain surgeon, but I flunked bedside manner. Oh, yeah, that, <laughs> that goes without a doubt, just, you know, reading some of the other stuff about you there. You you went out, you took your job seriously, dead seriously, yeah. and uh, you proved to the brass and, and other officials that their security wasn't where they thought it was. Yeah, it, again, it's, you know, it's a stylistic interpretation, obviously. Everybody thought I was, again, a loose cannon and doing what I wanted and breaking the rules. But but the Red Cell was a, was the design conception of a, of a, then a three-star admiral out of the Pentagon, Ace Lions, that ended up a four-star admiral. In fact, he's retired and lives about 20 miles from me. Uh, and we just recently did, a, did an interview together. But, you know, the Navy had a thing called Red Flag, which was a aviation program that flew tactics like the, like the Soviets, like like the old Soviet Union, and and they had MIGs, and and it meant when the when the fighters went, our fighters went over to towards Europe, they had gone against MIGs, and they knew you know the capabilities, and they had the edge. So Ace Lions, uh, as he's referred to uh, from the Academy days, uh, he thought that we had to do that for security, and and that's and so Red Red Cell. Uh, was you know something close to it, and and the normal sailors would understand. Uh, hey, we have something like this. This is just a little different. Uh, now, having said that, uh, obviously there are commands uh, in in every service that if you are the commanding officer of that and you survive that without uh, stepping on your proverbial, you're probably going to make flag or I mean you know general or, or admiral. And, and of course, not only did I 
performed the dirty, performed the dirty deed of proving that there were vulnerabilities, but I put it on tape, uh, so it wasn't just uh, you said I said like two little boys playing yeah. cowboys and Indians. It was oh, gotcha. So there was a uh, I suspect uh, those that didn't make flag felt that I had ruined their career. Well, yeah, you had to do what you had to do. I understand the embarrassment, I guess, but uh, you know that was your job. That's what you were tasked to do. Now, during the 80s, uh, Six was just coming into its own. You had created Red Cell. You'd moved on with that. But I wanted to ask you, were you involved or the teams, were they involved at the time during the uh, uh, the rash of, um, of uh, uh, what's the word I'm looking for here, hijacked planes back there in 84, 85, 86, in particular TWA? No, no, but but it, you know that shows you the evolution of terrorism in, in that you know it started actually in the seventies where hijacking cars, uh, hijacking cars, yeah, mm-hmm. we're doing that on the streets today, hijacking planes uh, for political hostages, uh, or prisoners that we held, you know, and flying to Cuba, and that's all they did, and, and then it grew to hitting embassies, and then you end up in nine one one with you know there is no rules anymore, and, and innocent civilians of any national uh, background uh, were open targets, so. It, it really is a a growth a growth industry in terrorism and and therefore a growth industry for counterterrorism. Now you were uh, put in. I'll say I'm going to say you're put in jail for about a year. Mm-hmm. Can you give us a little background on that? I you and I talked about. It. I want to kind of hear. I want the audience to hear it from you. Exactly what happened. I conspire it myself, John. I didn't know you could do that, but I <laughs> <laughs> you can do anything, Dick. But that's fine. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 actually, it was a um, uh, the combination of, of of my forming SEAL Team Six and then Red Cell, where uh, I I in essence attacked the Navy Department or the Navy establishment. Um, Left a, a lousy taste in people's mouth, and and uh, I was charged with. Conspiring with myself over a miniature <laughs> grenade contract um, after I had left SEAL Team Six, and it was it had to do in support for the LA Games, the, the Olympic Games. Oh, in '84. Yeah, and and uh, so I I I knew of a company that was working on so that you could throw these small grenades and get the get the perpetrator slash the terrorists and not take out the you know the stands of the those watching the games. And at any rate, uh, there was a kickback money or overcharging money uh, on that contract, and that's what they got me for. Uh, unfortunately, <laughs> what didn't make sense to me and is that one, I didn't get anything, and they they admitted I didn't get anything, and two, the contracting officers were army officers because the army has responsibility for grenades. So, you know, my view is, well, yeah, I know they're expensive, but if the contracting officials who contract for a full living are satisfied, that's a good price. That's fine with me. I'm, you know, I'm not, I've never been in contracting, and I don't worry about that. I just write requirements. I need these things. And uh, the price comes back, and they bought them, and I went to jail. So, um, but the, 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 the translation was: is uh, I should have been, I was suspect, and I should have said, to, "Hey, I think these are too costly, and I think people are getting money." But I, I didn't, and uh, so I got to spend time at one of our camps, uh, <laughs> and. Uh, 
and got some rest and, and uh, wrote the, the, the autobiography while I was resting. So it works perfect for you. We've got about two minutes left, and I'm going to ask you to give your perspective on the Bin Laden mission. Well, it's it's, it's a one of the Pulitzer Prize, and and uh, and that nobody got got hurt on that one, and it, it certainly is like the Super Bowl, and that they pulled it off and got the target after all these years, because Bin Laden had been in the in the crosshairs before, and, and and no one no one got to it. What is kind of unique for the for the listeners, John, is that uh, we talked about it earlier. It was a helicopter on Desert One. Uh, it was a helicopter that could have blown the mission for Bin Laden, uh, but it's been and validation of the need for having uh, formed these organizations. And after 30 years, the helicopter crew uh, ends up taking care of the helicopter. She is going to take care of Bin Laden, and the mission is accomplished because they have worked and trained together, and they'd worked against Murphy's Law. Bringing Murphy's Law back into it at the rehearsal site, because uh, they did rehearse going into the, the, a compound like this. They put an anchor fence around the compound, not a, a wall, and that was part of the problem with that helicopter. The ground effect coming with that 10 to 12 foot thick or high wall uh, changed the aerodynamics for the bird, and that's why it lost some of its lift and, and ended up sliding up and taking off the tail. So you and I would not know about the capabilities of that helicopter today had it not crashed. Uh, but uh, so now we know about it. But we know we got Ben Laden too. Excellent, Dick. I appreciate you coming on. We've been talking to retired Lieutenant Commander Richard Dick Marcinko. He is the founder of the now legendary Navy SEAL Team 6 that took out Bin Laden. Dick, I appreciate you coming on, and Merry Christmas to you. Same to you, John. Thanks and I'll be sending me. my baseball down to you sometime next week. No, that's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. Bye. 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 Bye